simpletons. That's what we call our cult members. I, I love just that. It's say, a little dude. backhanded, but <laughs> I really do appreciate that. Well, that's why a simpleton is a foolish and gullible person. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm the gullible one. Ryan's the foolish one. Yeah, we're the lead simpletons. <laughs> <laughs> that's cute. You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about the cult of minimalism. Yeah. We're going to answer a bunch of surprise questions, but first, let's read some more about less. <clears throat> so this is a little segment we do where we use an article as a jump off point for discussion here. And this one is from the New York Times. It's by I've Tim Kreider. You've heard it? <laughs> we've heard, heard of the New York Times. Both of us. Yeah, we've both heard of the New York Times. This one is uh, it's an op-ed piece. It's called Power. No thanks. I'm good. And uh, we'll just read from this. We'll use it as a jump off point here. The wish to have power over others is altogether alien to me. I just don't get it any more than I get why anyone wants to have kids or play settlers of Catan. I agree with that. The power, the kid. I have a kid, and I don't know why you people want to it. have kids. <laughs> yeah, oh, man, I'm playing settlers with Catan, uh, settlers of Catan with uh, Beulah tonight. Oh, really? Yeah, Mariah and I and Alex and her. Yeah. Anyway, Be- Beulah is the gal who did uh, these beautiful paintings yeah. behind us. Um, beautiful. Yeah, I don't get. I don't get board games, but I also especially don't get power. You know, what's funny, though. There's something I love a board. Game. There's irony. <laughs> there, oh, man. Yeah. A word game in particular. Don't get me started. Obviously. But there is a particular brand of irony in the I don't get the whole power thing. You literally have power with this article. <laughs> yeah, like 100%. You're literally, yeah, there's like, nothing more powerful than the written word. Right, than being written in the New York well, Times and I having influence. Well, I as someone who also... Oh, different, different influence and power, completely different. Yeah, I, no, that that's... Uh, yeah, yeah, there's a Venn diagram. Yeah, but, right, right. Yeah, no, but I relate to that because I... I mean, I joke all the time, like, I just want to be left alone. Like, I don't want to start a company. I don't want minions. I don't want... And I would, I would use an assistant. I would like to have an assistant. Yeah. But other than that, like <laughs> I don't crave having like a pyramid or a ladder or a throng or whatever you want to call it beneath me. Just because like I'm just like Ugh, I just right. want to be left alone. Yeah, it's, it's a slippery slope though. She gets yeah. an assistant, and then you you flash forward to 20 years from now, and she's at the top of some ivory tower. <laughs> yes. The more people they recruit, the more just money like, they bring make. me another sparkly water. <laughs> All right, return the text. Oh, man. Um, I just don't get it any more than I get why anyone wants to have kids or play Settlers of Catan. Even sexual fantasies based on power dynamics don't particularly appeal to me. Well, Well, we we, we we know more than we needed to. Uh, All right. Why would I want to boss other people around? He says, what would I make them do? Is is power just bossing people around? Let me read the article and I'll tell you. (laughs) What what would I make them do? My taxes, maybe? It sounds awkward. It just sounds awkward, like a huge hassle. I don't even like being waited on by people. Totally agree with that. Mm -hmm. I'm uncomfortable holding the meager meager and mostly illusory power of grades over my students. Mm -hmm. However, doing what I want and not being able to to do things I don't want to do has been one of my main priorities in adulthood. Oh, I relate to this so hard. Yeah. 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 I was like a terrible employee because I just didn't. Well, I have a problem with like mm, heating authority. I don't full on respect. Mm. And so, um, but earning my respect uh, is kind of hard, I think. And, And, And why is that? No, I. Well, she likes to display her dominance. Yeah, no, I think I, I could unpack it. I mean, I I grew up in a family of um, like really smart and not that power hungry people, um, and I think was conditioned to just like respect a certain type of 
person. Mm. Um, and so, uh, gosh, I mean, the first example I can think of of me like really rejecting an authority figure that I was supposed to heed was my uh, high school theater teacher. Mm. Um, he was a total like cult of personality, narcissist. I mean, think of a population more easy to manipulate than like 14 year old theater kids you know they were like the misfits from their middle school who also like had this big dream to do theater and um he was totally ready to take advantage of that and the the, the, i mean i could talk all day about like the cult of theater school and theater camp like everybody's wearing all black right Mm. right um and you have to like change in front of each (laughs) other and like do these rituals and i don't know so but i just like wasn't buying it Mm. he just loved that position of power so much and had this like smug twinkle in his eye because he knew that he held that power over all these students. Um, And so I like left the program, which we weren't really supposed to do because I was like, fuck that guy. And then he ended up leaving the school and marrying a student. So I was right. (laughs) Um, You were vindicated. Yeah. But I, I do have this habit of like leaving, um, leaving groups, jobs, programs where I, don't revere the person who has control over me. And like, sometimes that's just like youthful hubris. Like I really just should respect the person that's my boss cause or my teacher because they're in that position, but sure. it's really hard for me. Yeah, that's interesting. All right, so so far this article is saying that power is bossing people around. It, has it said anything else besides bossing people around that, that makes power? Return the text. <laughs> I would define power as the ability to make other people do what you want. Freedom is the ability to do what you want. Mm. Like gravity and acceleration, these are two forces that appear to be different, but are in fact one. Freedom is the defensive or preemptive form of power. The power that's necessary to resist all the power the world attempts to exert over us from day one. So immense and pervasive is this force that it takes a a considerable counterforce just to restore and maintain mere autonomy. Mm. Who was ultimately more powerful? The conqueror Alexander, who ruled the world, who ruled the world, known world, or the philosopher Dianat, Dianat, Uh, what does that say? Diogenes, maybe? Yeah, Diogenes. Yeah, Junnies. My favorite philosopher, Diogenes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I've never even heard of that. Yeah, I think, I think this author made him up. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll, go, we'll go with Diogenes. Go ahead. <laughs> Diogenes. Um, DiGiorno. Uh, Is it so Ale- Alexander could not could neither threaten uh, him with anything. So Alexander reportedly said that if he weren't Alexander, he would want to be Diogenes. Diogenes said if he weren't himself, he would also want to be himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ambition for the more obvious and boring forms of power, political, financial, etc., may not always be inherently evil, but it does tend to have unfortunate side effects in the form of poverty, slave labor, mm-hmm. pogroms, and unwelcome territorial advances. My own ambition takes the comparatively benign form of artistic ambition, mm-hmm. inevitably alloyed with very 
various impurities, desire for recognition, for status, for enough money to get by, for women to like me. Mm. <laughs> Though, to be honest, <laughs> that's really why he does it. Though. Yeah, he's just trying to get chicks here in the yeah. New York Times. Chicks, yeah. <laughs> seems like there would probably be better ways. I, everything I did in my 20s was for the chicks, dude. <laughs> everything. Yeah. Oh, that's just, so um, is that I mean, I guess that's a type of ambition then, right? Um, Anyway, he goes on to say, though, to be honest, even this seemingly innocuous form of ambition serves an insidiously dictatorial desire to change what other people think Mm. and how they see. So, Mm -hmm. so, um, and maybe it goes on to explain. So now we're looking at power as, uh, yes, making people do what you want, but also like power in resisting power. Mm-hmm. And then also uh, power in basically altering the way people think. Yeah, having power over others or having power over yourself uh, is this weird sort of dichotomy here, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I wanted to use this as the jump off point here. We'll put a link to the rest of the article in the show notes. Yeah. And uh, maybe you can tell us how to pronounce the philosopher's name <laughs> in the <laughs> Patreon comments since right. I failed miserably there. But. Um, Amanda, what's fascinating here is Ryan, during the minimal episode, he talked about uh, his father is the most loving person he knows. And I I would completely disagree with that. He's not loving at all because he wants to do nothing but change. Ryan. He thinks he's being loving Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and maybe he is kind to people who conform to his worldview. It's Mm -hmm. conditional. Yes, and there's no such thing as conditional love. The, the, the conditional sure. love is an oxymoron. Mm-hmm. To love right. someone is to see them for who they are without trying to change them. But in order to be part of his life, you also have to be part of the group. Right. Mm. Yeah. And you see that over and over with cults. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that uh, that op-ed started out a little curmudgeonly, I think, to get yeah. uh, yes. some attention. Like, I don't like kids. I don't like... I don't like what? board games. Yeah, yeah. I like but But I really uh, connect to that idea of, you know, power versus freedom um, and wanting the freedom of artistic expression. And is is that a certain breed of power? Um, But certainly the most destructive forms of power um, are are strategically trying to um, get others to conform financially, physically, spiritually, emotionally, Mm. mentally to the person at the top who wants to create this echo chamber and maybe even a a physical kingdom that they rule. (laughs) Am I crazy to think that I could be an awesome cult leader? I does can that, see does it. That, does you that got by the de- hair. But, <laughs> and the sandals. But, yes. but does, that by, does that by default like um, make me insane to think I could be a good cult leader? <laughs> I hear that from time to time. I think, you know, there is this idea uh, in part perpetuated by, you know, media coverage, documentaries, movies and the like that, you know, the ultimate cult leader is like, you know, there's like white guy with long hair and sandals who has like a big smile and charisma, you know, and that's, that's like you. 90% of that. Well, no, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I mean by that. Like when I look at being a cult leader, I look at, um, you're leading a group of people in with a certain ideology. And w- when I think about like, what would I do if I was a cult leader? It would really be and Josh and I, I think we do this with the minimalists. We really help people think for themselves. Yeah. It's really about helping someone get to know who they are and then them forming a life that is meaningful to them, not meaningful to me, exactly, not meaningful to their parents, but meaningful to themselves. Sure. So I like in that sense, like I would love. And I, again, I think minimalists could probably be considered a little cultish. Mm. Um, but people uh, often think. I mean, they come to our events. So what happens? We do these live events, and 
and people will inevitably drag their significant other there who yeah. has no clue and they see like oh there's these two guys ryan gets on stage he's giving a talk about living a meaningful life yeah. and he's got the sandals and the hair and <laughs> and all of a sudden people are like is it what 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 did you bring me to? Right? Yeah. What is yeah. going on? Is this yeah. a tent revival? Like, are we going to speak in tongues? Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think too, you know, and the article was getting about this, uh, getting at this a little bit. I too, you know, I obviously am seeking some kind of influence because I'm publishing my work in in public. Yeah. Um, right. But a sort of like what you were saying, I have no desire to. Um, force my worldview on others um that's a futile effort anyway like sure. people are going to believe what they want to believe what yes. they're already open to believing mm. you can maybe like radicalize people a little bit or nudge them closer to an extreme version of what they're already open to um but you can't actually convince anyone of anything right right and um so i'm just like inviting people to take in these ideas and then come to their own conclusion um, but because of our fundamental human drives for connection, which is good for survival mm -hmm. and meaning and purpose, you can almost really create a cult around anything, anything, particularly when we're talking about big ideas, how to make your life more meaningful, et cetera. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting. So what I said in the minimal podcast was um, your book helped me see that we all belong to a cult. It doesn't, ma degree. it doesn't matter who you are. There is a cult that you belong to. And uh, it helps me, again, be more deliberate with the, the, uh, the groups that I associate myself with. To take that a little bit further, we all want power. Every single one of us wants some type of power. That's what that article is alluding to. Either you want power over others or you want power over yourself, or maybe it's a mix of both. So the, the question isn't like, how do we stay away from power? How do we stay away from a cult? It's like, how can we like look at these things for what they are and actually use them in a, in a really positive way? And yeah, I feel like that's, I feel like it's totally possible to do that. Um, well, the, I think so too. The article talks about how perhaps the least free person in the world is the president of the United States. Yeah. Yes. I think about that all the time. That person is so beholden like to every little commitment and whim and like requirement. I would just never, ever want to do that job. Mm. Like no, not in a million years. And sometimes, and maybe this isn't very generous of me. I like question anyone who would even want to pursue politics. I'm like, why do you want power that badly? Right. Like yeah. what happened? Who hurt you? Right. <laughs> right. And, you know, what's fascinating is like, you, you do see that there are probably some people who who really want to serve other people and maybe they see the public service. But even that that tends to corrupt people. Yeah. It, it's fascinating that the president, the most powerful person in the world, theoretically, is also the least free person in the world. He's so, the ultimate public servant, right? right I mean, at yeah. least he's supposed to be. Right. But of course, the, the back the back end. But anyways. Right. Yeah, um, it was special <laughs> interest, all this other stuff, yeah. right? Sure. We, yeah. we had Pete Buttigieg on the podcast and uh, when he was running for president. Yeah. And we, we asked him, you know, because you could tell like he, he did have some sort of, well, care for public service, for people to serve others. But at the same time, I saw this, well, 
you have to have power in a position like that. And doesn't that sort of ruin your life? Doesn't right. it? And it's a and big responsibility completely. And right. that, his answer was, yeah, like it's it's a it's a giant responsibility and I don't want to have to screw this up sort of thing. You know, yeah. sort of political politicians. Well, I think answer, you but. even talking about like not wanting advertisements on this show uh-huh. like that even talks or that speaks to like y- you in part wanting freedom rather than power mm. because like advertisements would mean more oh. money, but you're also beholden to those people and that that eliminates some of your freedom in yeah. a way like maybe life is just like this constant negotiation between power and freedom power and freedom which is like yeah. you know those two things are invariably connected but we were talking about obviously all day we've been talking about cultishness but like so many of the reasons for why people get involved with groups that are maybe healthy but maybe ultimately very destructive is because it are connected to people's desire for service like mm. people want to make the world better who who wants to make the world worse i mean i would even argue that like villains in movies think that they're making the world better at yes. least for themselves Thanos was like in his own mind he was like a really a uh, benevolent person yeah yeah right right and you know why is a whole different psychological <laughs> conversation but you know this is why people get involved with groups as destructive as nexium and as constructive as the cult of the minimalists because <laughs> you know you want you you want to have hope yes. that life can be better and more meaningful mm. um no one ever gets involved with something to make their life less meaningful you know right yeah what, what would make minimalism a cult the reason i asked this question is because i could see how it could very easily become a cult. If Ryan and I had yes. the desire to turn it into sure. a cult, we we definitely we could do a benevolent version of Nexium. Yes, um, sure. Because there are certainly the roots in in mysticism and Buddhism and in simple living and in minimalist art and architecture, sort of all sort of combined together to make this thing. And we've had you know millions of people see our Netflix films, and so we ha- we have this ability to attract a certain number of people. But I think the biggest difference for me and the reason it couldn't be a cult for us, not that it couldn't be for others, is I don't want to be with groups of people. Yeah, I, <laughs> I know, right. I, I am like the the most sort of introverted. The only people I, I hang out with regularly are my wife, my daughter, and my best friend here. Mm-hmm. And then the group of people that's in this room or the other people on our team, like Jess or Emma's not here today. But like I spend more time with the people I work directly with. But even them, I... I feel like, oh, I don't want power over them. And by well, the way, it, he still doesn't like any of us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I never so claimed to. He, he loves but, us, though. But isn't it funny, though, that in the age of the internet, so many cults can form uh, without, like, the cult leader's consent because they're, oh, like, yeah. parasocial? You know, I think of celebrity stands. Um, like, there are really zealous fan cults that form around certain celebrities and public figures that the celebrity themselves has like almost like a toxic relationship with or is like, oh, you're acting too radical. I wish you wouldn't, you know, cause drama in my life this way. Or maybe the relationship, you know, they're they aren't controlling that group. They're like a monster that's they've that they've built themselves Mm. because people seek community and tribes so fundamentally that, you know, you can have this totally parasocial cult. I also think of, you know, certain people on social media who maybe never imagined they would blow up and, you know, have a social media quote unquote cult of their own and it sort of you know metastasizes without them intentionally creating that you mm. know mm. so so if i look at 
the characteristics of minimalism, it would turn into a cult if we wanted to wield power over people. I think that's the, the first thing that... I can think yeah. of a few reasons. Well, I've been yeah, thinking about this. Um, well, I think it would be very cultish of you to... Um, and this is totally antithetical to how you two operate, but if you instantly created this really severe us versus them dichotomy, yes. like you cannot casually participate in minimalism. If you don't do X, Y, Z, you're not a minimalist. You're not one of us. You're the right. enemy. Right. And I've been thinking about minimalism, sort of um, comparing it in my mind to to veganism, mm, because yeah. Um, yeah, like I was yeah. I was vegan for a long time. I still eat, you know, mostly plant based, but whatever. I may be like eighty percent vegan. Mm. And I got into veganism. Um, the vegans hate when you say something know, like that. I know, right. I know, it is it is quite yeah. cultish, um, and I hate to say that. And I'll talk about that in a second, but I initially got into veganism because I was inspired by the vegan YouTube community. Okay. And this was during a time when um, high carb, low fat veganism was very Oof. trendy. Um. It was like a lot of fruitarians and people who, you know, <sighs> treated like healthy fats and oils like they were the devil. Mm. And if you weren't. Like, and of course, no one alive is a hundred percent vegan. Like, never no. encounters something that doesn't use an animal product. It's like almost impossible. Right. Um, Even your fruit has bugs in it. Li- yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. How many moles had to die to like, yeah, I to know. get that spinach or to grow? How many bees had to suffer for you to eat those blueberries? You know, you can, it, right. there's like the slippery slope argument that sure. you can follow down that rabbit hole. But, um, but yeah, I remember, you know, feeling uh, like I never met any of these vegan influencers that were having such a strong effect on me, Mm. but their rhetoric and their, um, extremism. And I'm talking about that in the context of this us, them dichotomy was so burned into my brain that as I was living my everyday life and grocery shopping and like looking at a bag of sandwich bread at the office and being starving and being like, I want to make a piece of toast, but that has a speck of whey in it. And Mm. whey is like an animal product. And I can't have that because this social media influencer who I've never even met and doesn't even know me would think of me as a bad vegan. Um, and, you know, yeah. over the years I've grown older and I've, you know, <laughs> constructed my own sense of identity and I've realized that you can have more balance and it's not always realistic. Here's the thing is that my my partner has become vegetarian and I have become more vegetarian. And statistically, if more of the world just ate a little bit less meat, that would be way better than like 0.1% of the world being 100% vegan. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I'm sort of thinking like, Minimalism and veganism have some similarities in that, you know, if everybody was perfectly minimalist, like, yes, that would be good for the planet. Like, the planet would benefit. The people might suffer psychologically, mm-hmm. you know, depending on who was having power over them. Um, but ultimately, like, veganism and minimalism are going for something good, mm-hmm. um, something objectively good, not something subjectively good, like some, you know, Sky Daddy will reward you later. Like, I think we can all agree that, you know, doing things to minimize our consumerism or to minimize our meat consumption is is helpful for the planet but you can so easily take that objectively good thing and twist it so that it almost like 
works counterintuitively because nobody can be 100% minimalist. Nobody can be 100% vegan. And eventually there's going to be a breaking point. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I think there's there's no prescription with me and Ryan. Like even jokingly in our last book, Love People Use Things, there are these 16 rules for living with less. But we even talk about how they're not actually rules. Like we yeah. don't have any. They're they're adjustable. And yeah. so like and what's the punishment if you break one? Like there is none. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We, we don't. We, we don't, take away your minimalist certificate. Yeah. You get disfellowshipped. <laughs> we shun you. Right. The other minimalist friends of yours oh. can't talk to you anymore. Yeah. That's how it felt when I was under, again, that completely parasocial influence of the vegan community. I still think that like veganism is fantastic and I like yeah. try to abide by a vegan mentality as much as possible. But I think that us, them dichotomy um, and some of the buzzwords and such yeah. that, that are used to enforce that um, can can be one of the most destructive aspects. So I don't think we're talking about cult versus not a cult. I mean, after reading Amanda's book, I think minimalism is a bit of a cult. It is cultish. Cultish. So the question isn't like how, like what, what steps could Josh and I do like to really make this a cult? What the question that you're really asking is what steps can we do to make this a very unhealthy cult? Exactly. Because yeah. as I was saying on the, on our, on the public podcast um, that, you know, the word cult itself is not enough to illuminate the dangers and risks that are on the table right. because so many groups could be considered cults seeing as this word is so subjective that you need to be like a little bit more specific in what you're talking about. And something mm -hmm. can be cultish without being bad. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so there are things that we could do if we wanted to have dominion over people, if we wanted them to say, well, if you consume more than X number of products a month, then all of a right. sudden you aren't a minimalist. If we had minimalist certificates or a way to accept you into the group. Yes. Although you, you were saying something on the, the public episode where, um, what was it? Where, where if, um, if someone just shows up and, and, is accepted for who they are. That is another sign of a couple. Like, well, yeah, that's kind of like we don't. Oh, I, sorry. I, I should clarify. I meant if you are imbued with a sense of elitism just uh, for showing just up, for not showing acceptance, up, yeah. but elitism. Like you are now better than everyone else on the outside just just for being here. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. And I'll tell you, like with with minimalism or with veganism, for that matter, it's very easy for people to get a sense of elite elitism. Like they feel like they have, well, I have, I have a much better way of living and you are, uh, you know, you are doing whatever to the planet. You're actually harming yourself. Oh, poor you. Like right. they kind of look down on other people. Which, like, so, isn't that so counterproductive? It's like yeah. you want other people to adopt this mentality, but if you shun them and if you act all sanctimonious, and again, this was how the vegans were like, if you act all sanctimonious, I remember Oh my gosh, I was doing an Instagram live once and I made this really offhand comment um, in response to a question I was getting during the live where they were like, I talk about veganism as a cult. And I was like, oh, I definitely think veganism is cultish. Ha ha ha. Like, I'll talk mm -hmm. about that later on my uh -oh. podcast. <laughs> and a vegan slid into my DMs mm -hmm. and I don't know what they were thinking. Like, the ultimate goal should be to get people to be more vegan. Yes. And she, was, she sent me this incredibly judgmental, sanctimonious, otherizing mm. DM and like I motherfucking dare you because my arguments are watertight and <laughs> I got back to her and like I won't tell the whole response but 
I told her, I was like, if and when I ever go back to being closer to 100% vegan again, mm -hmm. it will not be because of messages like this. It will be in spite of them. Like, right. do you know that you can't convince anyone of anything by making them feel less than you? Mm -hmm. her, her arguments made no sense. Yeah. But <laughs> It's an old, uh, old P.T. Barnum quote. I think it, it's uh, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. 100%. Yeah. And, and that's what, like, okay, maybe you say, you, oh, I feel guilted. I feel shamed and so it's i guess I, i'll eat just kale today or whatever right well, one of my favorite vegans and my favorite vegan in the world is rich roll he's been mm -hmm. on this podcast four or five times he never proselytized he's never no. trying to convert anyone right you know what is effective he's 54 and he's in better shape than i've ever been yeah and we even right? had him on a podcast with dr paul saladino who's a carnivore he eats nothing but meat and has profound arguments uh, from an evolutionary standpoint I mean, if you look at all hunter gatherers zero percent of them were ever vegan yeah yeah no and for sure you look at the messiah or the hadza now and like they they'll tell you the meaning of life is is meat totally meat and honey Although, yeah. meat and all honey. those people yeah. live much more sustainably than the rest of us so Absolutely. like there's a reason you yes. know yeah, yeah but definitely. it's so funny when people look at like how ancient humans lived to determine how they should live now i'm like we're not the, our reality is very different now right like yeah. ancient humans did a lot of shit like kicking around human heads like a soccer ball for fun like we 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 should not return to how early humans lived it no. sucked it was hard right. we can get some insights <laughs> well, yeah. from those people i mean mm -hmm. the hadza are living in tanzania right now and they don't worry about their 401k accounts totally. reducing by one percent this month mm. oh my gosh fully i i remember you know because we get so, especially americans get so u.s centric and yeah. you know the cult of just americanism you know oh, like wow yeah we, we just get so, so high and mighty about like the american way of living is the best um but i was watching i i i went to Tanzania once and got to meet the Maasai <laughs> and um, I was you know your initial instinct is like oh my god I could never live like this mm. like I, I almost like feel bad for these people but then I started educating myself more and I remember watching this um, this documentary on YouTube where this uh, like white South African woman married a Maasai man and oh, wow. she which is you know rare it doesn't happen too yeah. often and she moved to the Maasai village and she was like in tears describing how meaningful mm. and good for the planet and their own mental and emotional well-being that lifestyle was and i was like shit should i am i trying to live in a hut right <laughs> well, yeah. well you know what happens is when you remove when you have when you're steeped in consumers and when you're steeped with things and technology and and an abundance you don't appreciate the little things. In fact, it becomes overwhelming when you have too much. So I could totally see totally. her going to this other extreme of like not having a lot and then learning how to appreciate just the small things. I'm like, oh, we've got some honey today. This is amazing. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's only an extreme relative to our extreme yes. state. Exactly. Yeah. We're actually the extreme. We're the extreme. We are by mm. far the extreme. Oh my God. I totally like had this awakening in quarantine. Well, I actually think I saw your Netflix documentary in quarantine oh, wow. and <laughs> at the beginning, at the wow. beginning of quarantine. And, um, well, not to not to stand you two. Okay, but a little bit. Um, my my boyfriend and I were like, oh my god, we're gonna do minimalism Sundays, where every Sunday we throw I or love we, it. we not throw away, we um give away five things. Mm. Um, and we started doing that every Sunday, kind of like the thirty day thing, where like if you don't use something for thirty days, you like throw it away. Mm -hmm. But we were like, we're gonna do it this way, um, which again was not one of the rules or whatever, but like that was our way. Um, and then we and then. Oh my God, my friend uh, became a convert and like she got really into it. And then we started this Instagram account.
account called the Sunday Minimalists, where like every <laughs> week, every week we started like um, selling stuff that we didn't want, but that was still like cute decor stuff, like mm. houseware stuff on um, Facebook Marketplace, and we would like stage it all cute, and then it turned into a thing where we were like um, thrift flipping because we were mm. like we we want an activity that we can do in quarantine that's like safe, but that's not us being on our phones. Yeah. So we would like go to thrift stores and find cute furniture and homewares so we could get like our shopping fix again growing up in the cult of minimalism mm -hmm. but it was secondhand stuff that we would then sell to like make someone else happy in oh, their wow. home and so it like turned into this whole that thing that is so cool the Sunday <laughs> oh, minimalist that yes. is awesome I oh, dig that yeah that's um, really cool so you talk about I don't remember if this was in your book or elsewhere but um, when someone says that they're uh, trying to vibrate on a higher frequency <laughs> and um, yes. it's sort of these these buzzwords and like wow. I think that there can be an honest essence to that where totally. someone is uh, you know, approaching it in a way that is they, they mean one thing but it also has been bastardized and it's yeah. effectively meaningless although I wanted to say are these tarot cards at your feet here in this picture? <laughs> yeah, well, I do live in LA. I mean, like, as, as just tarot like, cards are fun. Yeah, tarot cards are fun. They're, they're pretty pictures. Yeah. Um, so, but, so tell me, tell, tell me about uh, um, the vibrating at a higher frequency. Where does that come yeah, from? Well, and then also, is this ironic or is it just fun? Is it's it a little bit ironic. Well, that was a photo that I took right when I got my book deal for cultish. And so I sprinkled the photo with some culty things. Oh, this is the novel yeah. The Girls, written by Emma Klein, which is a beautiful cult novel, one of the, you know, best cult novels of our generation and um yeah the tarot cards are associated with cultishness i don't read tarot or like really subscribe to it but people just in la give you tarot card decks as gifts yes you know so i have so many um but i think you know i would never judge someone for having tarot cards in their house it's of like whatever not. you do you but um to a degree but uh with the you know vibrate on a higher frequency stuff i mean this is this is new age language and i actually i wrote a an op-ed for um refinery 29 about like the cultish language that's taking over our entire culture because you'll hear this sort of new agey um like physics derivative type language mm. that'll talk of like in the quantum you know, realm exactly yeah. exactly it's it's this language that you'll hear not only in like wellness spaces or yoga spaces or soul cycle type spaces but also even in startups like in in startup offices, you'll hear people talk about organic, holistic, actualized paradigm shifts. Yes. Um, you'll yeah. hear this uh, in just everyday life. I remember I was getting my hair cut and my, um, of, this is very LA again, but my my hairstylist was just like talking to me about what she had been up to lately and how she'd started working with a life coach. And I was like, oh, cool, cool. That's good for you. And then I was telling her about my life and she was like, you are just so upgraded energy wise <laughs> from where you were like a year ago and I'm like I get it like mm. this is you know this sort of symbolic language that shows that she's a member of a certain group that believes in certain you know maybe slightly woo woo ideas right. um, and so in that context it's it's not super destructive in, in a startup environment it can be slightly more of a red flag because that sort of like 
power structured environment um, often creates an echo chamber where the language doesn't really mean anything, mm. but it's there to sort of uh, encourage conformity to show like who's a team player, like mm. who in this office uses this language. And that shows that they're not a troublemaker mm. um, who's sort of like reflecting the CEO's madness back at them by using this kind of meaningless corporate BS. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at its most destructive, this language, which really does co-opt and bastardize and thus sort of corrupt the meaning of physics language, science language, biology language, talk of like quantum DNA. What does that even fucking mean? Like That doesn't mean anything. (laughs) At its worst, that language um, can really work to uh, perpetuate sort of QAnon conspiracy theories, conspiritualist ideology. That's a portmanteau of spirituality and conspiracy theorist for Mm -hmm. those unfamiliar, um, the sort of you know, like yoga gone QAnon moms in your suburbs, you know, that's uh, population. So um, when you, when you use this language in a way that is not really for information or communication or to make um, meaning clearer, but instead to make it more nebulous and to have these ulterior motives of encouraging that conformity and discouraging that independent thinking and questioning and dividing people into like the in-group who knows how to use this language and the out-group who might be considered troublemakers, um, that's when it starts to feel cultish. And the fact that this type of language is imbuing so many spaces in our culture right now really reflects something about our super fraught current relationship um, with community and spirituality and identity and meaning. We are just so craving that type of community connection mm. right now and the language is reflective of that. Well, you know, the, the, the saying um, high, uh, vibrating on a higher frequency, what, that does a couple things. A, it makes you feel superior. For sure. So like you've got this superiority complex going on. Because it's saying everyone else is on a lower, lower vibration. Fre- yeah. And so that's bad or good. Like, but you know, we have a friend, Rob Bell, who talks about the base notes of life, and maybe that yeah. is actually... A, and, and so we... Yeah, we, I mean, like the odds are technically on a lower frequency. <laughs> yeah, right? well, okay, so uh, there is, you know, always room for metaphor and analogy and language mm-hmm. and euphemism, of course, and it doesn't necessarily have to be cultish, but this language of vibrations and frequencies, this sort of new age language, I mean, I opened the book with an anecdote about a group that uses this language, yeah. the Kundalini Yogis, the yeah. happy, healthy, holy organization Mm. um and you know they would emotionally load these phrases such that they could really control people's behavior by um framing this language in the form of threats or Mm. love bombing i mean i tell a story um toward the beginning of the book from a source the first source that i ever talked to for this book who was a former member of 3ho um who uh you know used the special language that they use the lizard brain and piscean consciousness and all this stuff Mm. which means nothing to us but meant a whole hell of a lot to them and uh, the most you know striking story that she told me was how they redefined the term old soul in this group and emotionally loaded it um in order to control people's behavior yeah so old soul to you know us outsiders is really a compliment it means someone who's like wise beyond their years Mm -hmm, but in 3ho they slowly and deliberately twisted it to mean someone who had lived life after life reincarnated time and time again and could never get life right Mm. so they would threaten people by saying like 
oh, well, you don't want to be an old soul. If you don't mm. do that, you know, it was um, a group with obviously extremely Dang. specific rules and requirements. It's like, it's like if you if you don't do this or don't do that, mm. you're going to be an old soul or that person yeah. is an old soul. And so they would be framed as an enemy. Um, yeah. And that was really powerful for them, even though it's a compliment to us. Yeah. This vocabulary is fascinating to me because it reminds me of Ryan's and my time in the corporate world. We spent a dozen years working for this corporation. <laughs> we spent a dozen years belittling people and making them feel less than us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we were vibrating oh, at a I higher laugh. frequency. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I laugh, but it's true. But, well, man. And it's because we were all that was what was displayed for us. And yeah, so we right, were middle exactly. managers, right? Right. We we had our own little fiefdoms and stuff. I managed yeah. 150 retail stores, yeah. which um, when was I was the, a little bit younger than you. And yeah. I damn. I realized like it, you, you say damn, but I'm like, how can a 29 year old be a linguist? Like, that's crazy. To oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, right. yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm like, anyway, um, I remember we were in a meeting once. This is right after I just shortly discovered minimalism. I had been simplifying my life. And uh, I realized sort of the absurdity of what we were trapped in. We were in a, we had every Monday, Monday morning meetings. And I was writing down every time there was an acronym or a word of jargon. Uh-huh. And I got to 83 yeah. Oh, yeah. in a two hour meeting. We were in our own little cult. We were in a corporate cult. Yeah. For sure. I mean, oh, just look wow. at WeWork. That's like the oh. most, you know, extreme example if right. folks have watched the WeWork documentary. That's a cult documentary as far as I'm concerned. Wow. And yeah. there was so much jargon. I mean, yeah. the like WeEOs and like we <laughs> Life, and, you know, everything was an acronym or abbreviation or portmanteau involving the word we. Um, mm. And, you know, I talked to uh, a corporate business consultant for the book who was talking about how when he goes into corporations and notices an excess of that jargon, he he clocks it as a sign that there might be some power abuses going it on. It might be unhealthy. Yeah. It might be unhealthy because people are really rallying around this empty but emotionally loaded terminology. Yeah. Mm. So the other thing about uh, vibrating at a higher frequency that also implies that you are above your impulses you are above you know mm. the the lizard brain yeah. type you know instincts you're above your body yeah exactly and, and you're above the yeah you're above the body you're above the emotions and we i mean all of us want some sort of self-control right like we all want to feel like we're in some sort of control right. i think it, here's what i want people to get out of this podcast the minimal and hopefully hopefully they got it there and, and but here at the maximal if you're listening to this you're probably part of a cult if you're listening or at least something cultish or something cultish and if you're listening to this um you are someone who craves power in some way so the question is is like how can you do these things in a healthy way when you look at the corporate cult that we were in it was unhealthy because uh well yeah we were basically making people work until they were having heart attacks essentially um in some cases literally yeah exactly and that's just one symptom of of many that was going on there i had a boss was 49 he was on his second heart attack and third divorce oh my god yeah it's crazy so 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 you know where the so again just getting back to like everyone's on a call and everyone's looking for power it's really I want people to be able to look at their own lives and ask like, am I part of something healthy or unhealthy? Cause it's not a matter of, are you part of a cult? That's not the question, <laughs> right? The question is, is are the cult or the cultish thing that you belong to? Is it adding value to your life? Is it adding value to other people's lives? So how do we help people differentiate between healthy and unhealthy? I think one way is if you're, if your cult 
if it otherizes others, if it does this us versus them, mm-hmm. that's probably a sign that it's something unhealthy. If it, it stops serving you yeah. also, because like the thing is, the thing that may have served you a year ago, two years ago, 10 years ago, if you're still part of it and clinging to it, and it's no longer serving you, yeah. but you're not allowed to, to leave, leave. Right. Then that's, I remember when I, when I quit my uh, corporate job, I went and put in my resignation. I laid myself off. Essentially, we had to close a bunch of stores. I had to lay 42 people off. My name was the first one on the list. And uh, my boss said, you can't quit. (laughs) You know how terrifying (laughs) that was? I didn't know that was an option. Okay, And here's the other red flag that's similar. It's like, when you're in the group, how do they treat people who leave? Yes. How do they treat people who leave? Are they regarded as, you know, evil villains? And you can even look at this in terms of uh, one-on-one relationships, which I mentioned are, are, are cults of one, essentially, in terms of the techniques of manipulation. Like, I remember, I, I mean, I've been in toxic relationships, and I remember with someone um, I used to date, like, the way that he talked about his exes was such a red flag in terms yeah. of cultishness. Oh. Like, they were framed as the devil and I was just filled with this sense of fear like I can't be one of those people but that's so manipulative he's like his own little cult leader yeah (laughs) were were you ever the toxic person in a toxic relationship I mean everyone's a little toxic (laughs) (laughs) that's a young MA line most of my relationships before the age 30 were toxic and uh, they had they all had one commonality (laughs) it was me No, honestly, human relationships are so difficult. (laughs) One of the things my my wife told me when we first started dating is like, you seem to have a great relationship with everyone you dated in the past. And uh, there was one exception to that. But uh, everyone else like, yeah, I still had a a great relationship with them. And just because a relationship doesn't work out, you don't want it to become toxic at some point. Mm. Now, the cult thing is fascinating because you can be part of a cultish group that lets you leave. CrossFit isn't going to shun you necessarily if you walk out. They may look at you like, ah, you know, whatever. You you, gave up. He's a quitter. Or she's a quitter. You know, Yeah. yeah. And and yet, and it may just rib you and it could just be in good fun as well, right? Sure. Um, but there are other places where they will name call. You're, you're demonic. You're, I mean, Ryan's well, worldly. I am now worldly. You're worldly. Yes. Right. yes. Yeah. God forbid. Oh, yeah. man. I mean, you know what's interesting is that um, one of my favorite sources that I talked to for the book was this woman named Laura Johnston Cole who was a Jonestown survivor and her story is bonkers and you mm. simply must read it. It's really good. Yeah. Oh, it's so great. And, and she was so whip smart and funny um she was in her 70s she actually passed away shortly after our last interview um so i felt like i really needed to do her justice but what was super interesting is that um she survived jonestown the like biggest cult tragedy of all time <sighs> and then she went and she joined another cult of right course away. oh my god um, wow man into the fire yeah. and by coincidence that was the cult where my dad spent his teenage years. So this is like this whole backstory. Like part of why I'm so fascinated by cults is because my dad spent his teenage years um, in the late 60s and early 70s in a group called Synanon, Mm -hmm. which was promised to be the socialist utopia, but was really sketchy and turned violent. Mm -hmm. Long story. It's Mm -hmm. in the book. Anyway. (laughs) By the way, um, the book is dedicated to your father. It is. Mm -hmm. It is. He cried. (laughs) Um, But so Laura Johnston Cole went from Jonestown to Synanon because she wasn't yet ready to 
give up that overabundance of, of idealism. She wasn't yet ready to give up on communal living. Yeah. Um, and, and it's hard to figure things out for yourself. Like it's so much easier when you're like, oh, well, this group of people, they must have the answers. And she was like, she was, you know, uh, she advocated for racial justice. She was involved with the Black Panthers. She was a white girl. But like she really believed in this sort of, you know, anti-racist um, utopia yeah. and was not willing to give up on that. That's what. That's what the People's Temple, a.k.a. Jonestown, was promised to be. And um, Synanon had some of that energy. And so uh, she wasn't willing to give up. After she left Synanon, she was like, okay, (laughs) I think I'm done. (laughs) Well, like the one commune solution to humanity's (laughs) problems. So then I was like, okay, so what, what have you learned? Like, obviously, you're still a communalist and you still have hope for humanity and all this stuff. But like, what, what is your solution now that you've had all of these incredibly unique experiences? And she kind of told me like, well, maybe it's to be a member of multiple different cults. So it's like, she was like, now I'm a Quaker very chill uh, religion. Yeah. She was like, Quakers no. are great. Yeah, Quakers are great. Yeah. She's like, now I'm a Quaker and I'm also like an immigrants rights activist and I participate in that with this group and I also meditate with this group and then sometimes That's I get together awesome, with my old Synanon pals and we talk about the good old days, crazy old days. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I like that idea that like if you can be a member of a, mul- of a multitude of groups who like allow you to invite other perspectives because your, your identity is so much more complex than any one given group or guru like that's how you cultivate how you like conceive of yourself in the world yeah. is, is through a, a multitude of things you know to sort of like diversify your social and spiritual portfolio yeah if you will, instead yes. of investing only in one thing no that's awesome yeah well, and if you're part of a group that doesn't encourage diversity like that's a sign you oh, might yeah. be part of an unhealthy group right yeah uh, 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 one, more, one quick thing I'll tell you I'll, I'm going to not use drinking the Kool-Aid phrase anymore after reading oh, your book. Oh yeah. Well, let's talk about the the drinking the Kool-Aid phase because or phrase because um, what well, was a phase for a few people. Yeah. Um, but let's let's talk about it because we use it as uh, it's funny. It's in jest. It's, yeah. it's ribbing. Well, I guess I drank the Kool-Aid. Right. But let's talk about where it derives from. But sure. then also uh, and let's also talk about Yogi tea as well. Oh well, man. When we're All talking right. about beverages. Oh. Yeah. Why did yeah, you have yeah. to ruin Yogi tea for <laughs> me? Um, yeah, so uh, I mean, some listeners probably know that drinking the Kool-Aid is a phrase that derives from the Jonestown tragedy. Right. Um, it wasn't Kool-Aid, by the way, like what poison they were given. It was it was a different brand. It was called Flavorade. Right. Oh. You know, the Kool-Aid folks, uh, their PR must have tried I to squash know. this whole thing. I bet. It wasn't yeah. Kool-Aid. It was Flavorade. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, that's oh. like um, how the Heaven's Gate members died wearing uh, 93 Nike decades and Nike was like, God damn it. Right. And they like instantly pulled the style. But then, of course, it became a collector's item. People yeah, now just, they're selling for thousands of dollars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, mm. But yeah, but, you know, the stories that the popular media has told about Jonestown don't do the story justice. No. You know, there's been this this mythology created around it that these were a bunch bunch of mind controlled minions who lined up like devout communicants and you know voluntarily drank this poison Kool Aid, um, you know, in service of their leader. But that's not the story of Jonestown at all. These people who were mostly black women, by the way, um, and were promised this sort of like integrationist utopia were forced to either ingest or be injected with this poison 
because Jim Jones knew that his reign of power was coming to a close and he was such a megalomaniac that he was like, if I'm going down, then the entire ship has to go down with me. Um, and so, yeah, no, I encourage people to to look more into Jonestown and not just, you know, the articles that you'll find on Google. Actually, uh, the University of California, San Diego has an amazing free like archive of Jonestown resources that I encourage folks to Google. Um, if you just Google like UCSD Jonestown, mm-hmm. you'll find it um, because the stories surrounding it are are um, not not really representative of what truly happened. And drinking the Kool Aid, I used to use that all the time as well. And right. now I'm just like, this has this fucked up history. Yeah, <laughs> it's like a, it's it's like a disrespect to people who. Like the way I look at it, because what I didn't realize was how it wasn't a bunch of devotees who lined up like, okay, where's my glass of Kool-Aid? I mean, they were like basically given the option of you can get shot exactly or you can drink this Kool-Aid. You get to decide how you die. For sure. And again, like we tell us, we tell ourselves that story that they did this voluntarily because we want to believe that would never happen to me. Yeah. it never will like Jonestown was unprecedented yeah. and has remained unreplicated like that will not happen again most likely you right. know yeah. and when people make these sort of blanket comparisons to Jonestown whenever something culty happens it's actually not even productive because it flattens the conversation like something can be bad without being Jonestown level bad That's right. Um, yeah. but yeah I mean I, I so wanted to like dispel so many of the cult myths that are in our culture in the book uh, but we can talk talk about yogi tea yeah let's talk about yogi tea (laughs) oh man this was just like in a footnote in the book but yeah i discovered that well it's actually nuts how many cults from the jehovah's witnesses to uh the happy healthy holy organization to the family if anybody's watched the netflix series the family about the like oh. evangelical political cult that oh. has so many connections in oh, washington I, so many yeah i gotta watch that oh that's man great. like you know the national prayer breakfast that's had every year in yeah. washington right. that's not put on by the government that's put on by this cult called the family and oh. all, politicians all attend it's wow. it's so nuts like you've got to watch it but anyways oh. um yes a lot of these cults have well, and the Moonies, oh my God, the Unification Church owns so many businesses that you would never guess. And so there's all this money like funneling into the Moonies without you even knowing it. Anyways, Yogi Tea, popular tea brand yeah. on every grocery store shelf. We have some here, I yeah, think. Yeah, I have Sleepy yeah. Time Caramel Yogi Tea. It's one oh, of my I favorite. Have it bed- in my house. One of my favorite bedtime teas. Uh, <laughs> owned by a cult, owned by the Hel- Happy Healthy Holy Organization. I mean, these groups can get really wealthy. They own like a security company. They, I mean, you would just well, not to encourage dude, anyone to be paranoid, but Scientology yikes. owns the most real estate out of any group. Like they own the most real estate in Hollywood. Like it's every corner you go to, there's a Scientology building. Oh, yeah, yeah, walk around downtown Clearwater. Holy, oh yeah. Ryan and I own a coffee shop down in Florida in St. Pete, and so right up the street is is Clearwater. We we've gone there a few times, and you walk around, you're like, what are all these Mormon? Wait a minute. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, and and it's just like I, it, it feels. The simultaneously utopian and dystopian. Totally. And I think that's the feeling they're going for is like, if you're an outsider, it's going to feel dystopian. If you're inside, the great hope is that it feels like utopian. Feel for some of them, maybe it is utopia, or at least for a period of time. Yeah. The, um, the Osho cult, the Rajneesh. Yeah. They, I mean, I think many of them were living in utopia for a slice of it. Mm-hmm. And then... This is one of those those examples that I, I think is so fascinating because you had 
a figurehead who wasn't really the leader Mm -hmm. of the cult. Right. He was almost the deity in a way. The mascot. Yeah. Yeah, What a great, yeah. What a great way to say it. Osho was the mascot and, and also truly brilliant, but he didn't seem to really want power over people. I don't completely understand the Rolls Royce thing. He had 90 Rolls Royces or whatever, but yeah, (laughs) Yeah. but but, uh, he, he had really great wisdom. You can read some of his texts and if you were able to, extract it from the nonsense there's some beauty there's some profundity there definitely but everything else is you know, the sheila and what she did with the i mean there was prostitution going all kinds of weird stuff yeah. going on there yeah. Yeah. what what about that call what went wrong and how did it go wrong oh in the rajneeshes yeah oh that's actually not my wheelhouse i actually started to i Okay, because structuring this book was actually really um, challenging because there are so many cults that we can all agree are cults, and then there are so many cults that are just cultish. (laughs) And so the book is structured by dedicating every um, part of the book, and there are six parts, to a different category of cult, starting with actually the language that we all use to talk about cults and sort of the etymology of this word, um, setting that stage, and then uh, moving towards the most destructive cults of all time, and then going to the religious cults and the MLMs and the soul cycles and then the social media cults. Mm. But originally when I conceived of the book, there were like so many more categories that mm. I wanted to include. And then that just, I decided it would have felt really unsatisfying to have like a really, really short section on like 20 different cults. Right. This is part right. of why I decided to do the podcast. Cause I was like, so much is winding up on the cutting room floor. Mm-hmm. I need this other outlet to talk about these other groups. Mm. Um, but the Rajneeshes were this one group that just, ended up on the cutting room floor because they didn't really fit squarely into any of the categories that I chose, which again are like suicide cults, religious cults, multi-level marketing cults and pyramids games, fitness cults and social media cults. Mm. Um, And I was like, I don't really know where to put the Rajneeshes. So I started to research them um, and I watched Wild Wild Country and I got in touch with an Osho follower who I'm actually still in touch with and who thanked me for not including Osho. Um, uh, Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm. So I... I, I mean, that's actually not my expertise because my research stopped kind of early. Mm. That that makes sense. I was going to say, Mariah, like she... It's funny. She was reading this book and she was oh, you got to read this book and she's like telling me all these wonderful things she's learning and then it clicked with her. She's like, oh my God, like I'm reading Osho. Like this is Osho from Wow Wow Country Osho, yeah. and all of a sudden you think like, well, why are you indoctrinating me? Yeah, <laughs> you, you think I'm not supposed to do this, right? Because they're associated with a cult. But as Ryan pointed out, like there's cultish elements of virtually everything, including corporate America. There's mm-hmm. this other word, religion. Yeah. In fact, I'd be interested to talk to you about the etymology of of cult. Our friend Rob Bell was recently talking about the etymology of religion and how, and he was on our podcast and. We asked, like, hey, is, is minimalism uh, sort, of, sort of a religious movement? He's like, absolutely it is, because it's it's small r religion, yeah. right? So mm. so the, the Latin root um, is the same root with ligament. So your body has 900 ligaments in it. Ligaments hold things together. Mm. Your religious group, the liturgical nature of it, holds a community together. And mm-hmm. so, yes, we all have religious 
or liturgical impulses in a way because we, we need we desire to be part of something that holds us together. What holds us together? It can be healthy, it can be unhealthy, it can be destructive, it can be life affirming. Oh yeah. And it can be life affirming during one period of your life and it can later become destructive mm. for you. Yeah. And so maybe if the word cult is terrifying to you and you're like Oh, no, no, no. I, I, but religion is the same thing for a lot of people. No, no, I don't do anything religious. Well, yeah, we all do something yes. religious. Well, as difficult as it is to define the word cult, scholars have been arguing for even longer about what really defines a religion. Right. And I like the way that the theologian and reporter Tiz- Tara Isabella Burton defines it. And she says it's um, harder to define what a religion is and it's easier to define what a religion does. And that's to provide meaning, purpose, ritual yeah. and community yeah and like god doesn't necessarily even have to be involved right. um Ooh, so yeah. i and you know of course there is that quote like cult plus time equals religion blah 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 um but the, tara isabella burton has also talked about how we're living in a time of the what she calls the religiously remixed where a lot of young people are rejecting you know the protestant church that they went to growing up or like the conservative synagogue they went to growing up but they're sort of mixing and matching different spiritual and secular rituals and practices to create kind of a bespoke religion of their own. So it's like meditation in the morning, astrology app at midday, and then like ultra reform Shabbat with friends, you know, Mm. in the evening. And I think there's some beauty in that, but the word cult, and I was talking about this earlier, didn't have such sinister undertones in its earliest iteration. Um, in, you know, 500 years ago, the earliest form of this word, which is also connected to Latin as so much of language is, um, the earliest forms of this word just meant homage paid to divinity, you know, offerings mm. made to win over the gods. Mm. Um, and then over the centuries, it became associated with another sort of churchly classification, nothing bad, but you know, there was like religion, sect, cult. Um, it was something alternative, but not necessarily nefarious. This word didn't start to acquire its negative connotations really until like the mid 20th century. That's when we saw the formation of so many new religious movements, you know, everything from, oh gosh, Jews for Jesus mm-hmm. to, you know, Scientology to Satanism to the Church of Aphrodite, you know, so many of the quote unquote cults that we associate with like the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's when a lot of old school conservatives and Christians got, you know, kind of spooked by these new movements. And so cult became associated with like heretics and quacks and con artists. Yeah. But it really, really wasn't until Jonestown, 1978, Manson murders were a little earlier in 1969. That cult was put on the map as something that everyone in the United States should know about and fear. Mm -hmm. And that's why in the 80s you had the satanic panic where, you know, suburban families were terrified that there were like evil Satanists trying to kidnap and convert their children. Um, But then what's funny that is that as soon as the word cult became terrifying around the seventies, it also became cool. And that's why you saw the birth of so many seventies era slang terms like cult film and cult classic and cult followed. Um, And now we're at this point where the word cult can really apply to anything from a group as destructive as QAnon to like a makeup brand. Right. Yeah. Literally. I mean, people are using it in their marketing. Oh, yeah. Oh, when I was a beauty editor, haha, my former life, the cult that I was in, day job (laughs) vibes. um, I, I remember I went and I logged back into my old work email and searched like 
cult followed beauty product and there were thousands of results really? oh yeah i remember there was this one email where um the the press release was pitching some like cbd serum some like trendy bullshit as like this cult followed product that was not only a serum it was the priceless opportunity to handle anything life throws at you this was a serum wow so that's really loaded wow, <laughs> wow. yeah well i look at things like uh like Lululemon. I think uh-huh. even you talk about it a little bit in your book. Like Tiny bit. it is, it is its own cult. And again, this isn't good or bad. It just is. Well, it's funny about Lululemon and I want to, ha- these pants are Lululemon. Oh yeah. I love my Lululemon leggings. I can't <laughs> lie. But, um, for a long time, Lululemon employees, I interviewed a ton of people about Lululemon for the book. Actually, it didn't end up, you know, in the final edit. Um, so much ended up on the cutting room floor again. This mm. is why the podcast, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I, for a long time, uh, Lu- Lululemon, I always want to say LuLaRoe because everybody's talking about that MLM right now. But mm-hmm. anyway, Lululemon employees were required to go to Landmark events. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I know about Landmark. Chip Wilson, the founder of Lululemon, like loved Landmark. And so he wanted to create almost that like cult. like. What is self-help. Landmark? It's like a, it's like a uh, an empowering you go there and you find out how to get empowered it's okay. a little bit nexium vibes it okay. is yeah, 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 yeah a little bit okay. um so yeah i mean the, these are called organizational ideologies whenever a brand or company is not just selling a product but they're selling larger identity benefits like by you buying this bottle of mineral water in a you know bottle made out of recycled plastic like you're not just becoming hydrated you are you know an eco-friendly sexy hip in the know like well-connected person in general Mm. and you know millennial consumers in particular really connect with brands that have these strong organizational ideologies but sometimes the organizational ideologies that's a freaking tongue twister go beyond like you're an eco-conscious hip person they go to like you're enlightened you're Mm. transcendent yeah Mm. but brands they kill to have that uh, that association, though. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, yes. that's like with Lululemon. It's like if you wear Lululemon, um, I mean, I, I wear Lululemon because I just found a pair of pants that I like. Yeah, but, I like the <laughs> leggings. I can't lie. Right. But 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 I, but some people look at Lululemon like, oh, wow, like that means I'm really into yoga. Like I'm a true yogi if I wear Lululemon or um, like because Lululemon has these great, great sayings. Again, they're printed on the shopping bags. Right. And and I'm not saying that Lululemon is good or bad. They, it just is. But it is a little cultish, like with sayings like, uh, you know, real friends sweat together. Yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. Something like that. And yeah, it's uh, we call these faux fundities. <laughs> right. Faux right. Fundities. What, what are some of the other faux fundities? fundities uh, that's, do, do you have any, do you oh, remember any from Lululemon? Yeah. I mean, we can literally Google it because Chip Wilson came up with these phrases and then printed them on the shopping bag. So yeah. it's like subliminal messaging. It, it, but it is really good though. Like, I mean, cause I remember um, our good friend, uh, I don't know if I want to na- name his name and call him out for introducing us to Lululemon. Yeah, yeah. But he was talking about how the culture there, it really was about like st- being fit, yeah. being healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, if you really want a strong community, like th- then you got, you work together to like live a healthy lifestyle. And friends are more important than money. Yeah. Um, it was right. like the it's, only, they sound really good. Like, I mean, these are like trite 
bromides. Yeah. Right, yeah, a daily exactly. hit of athletic-induced endorphins gives you the power to make better decisions, helps you be at peace with yourself, and offsets stress. And there's, there, there is some truth to this stuff, oh, too. Right. Like, there has little, to be. Right, there's but little, when you say it in her tone, <laughs> it sounds like you're crazy. Okay, okay, listen to this. The, here's another one. Listen, 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 then ask strategic questions. <laughs> Creativity is maximized when you are living in the moment. Mm. I mean, of course there's truth yes, to it. Like there's course. always truth to cultish rhetoric or else why would anyone get involved? You right, know, yeah. these sound like, so Absolutely. we're, when we prepare for these episodes, Ryan will send me like a minimal maximum. Hey, what do you think about this or whatever? These like sound like all the ones I would reject. Mm. Yeah, or, or I know. I'm like, oh, there's, there's some sort of truth or thought in that, but it, a, it's not pithy enough, but B, it's like, it's Doesn't so... Rhyme. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's yeah. no alliteration with that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Speaking of, of preparing for this episode, I think I uh, first stumbled across your work. Were you on the, our friend Dan Savage's pod, podcast? Yes. Okay. That's awesome. Um, he's a former podcast guest, and he... Um, my wife and I listen to his podcast like every week. I love week. him. And, and anyway, like we heard, we heard about you, I think, through that, and then... Um, when I was preparing for this and she was like, Oh, I really like Amanda. She doesn't like the word panties. <laughs> and, and my wife Bex also hates the word panties for some reason. And so she's like, no, you have to look it up. So, um, thanks oh, to my wife no. in my, um, YouTube <laughs> search. I or in my, my, my Google history says Amanda Montel panties. panties. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh. <laughs> So we won't we, we won't like cliffhanger that we'll actually explain why. <laughs> so you did a video series. Oh my god, years ago. Mm. This is after you wrote your first book, which is called Word No, Slot, no, it was way right? before. Oh, it was it even was before way that. Before. Okay. No, this was like I was like 23, 24, and just trying to like find my voice, you know, um, like see what I wanted to say to the world. And yeah, I made these like really cringy YouTube videos talking about language and gender. That's the subject of my first book, Word Slut. Mm. Um and I didn't know why I was making them necessarily. I was just like, you know, why you do anything on the sure. internet when you're 23, 24 or whatever <laughs> in your 30s, 40s, 80s, whatever. whatever. No, no shame. Yeah. Um, I am a little ashamed. No, I'm not. I Like, I look back <laughs> at those videos and I'm like, Oh, that green screen. Oh, that haircut. Like, oh dear. Um, but yeah, they would be on things like why I hate the word panties or, you know, uh, I would break down some current event in uh, in the context of language and gender or, um, you know, play some sort of game or challenge with a special guest um, mm. having to do with language and gender. And um, yeah, I, oh God, I mm. beg you not to look them up. Um, yeah, just Google Amanda Montel <laughs> panties. You'll find it. <laughs> yeah, I had this series where I was talking about all these gendered words that I hated and I would sort of unpack why phonologically, phonetically, etymologically, sociolinguistically, these words were um, not sitting well with me. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I oh think God. that one just didn't sit well with you because... Um, well, there, there's a sort of childish implication yeah, behind it. Yeah, there's something infantilizing about that. Um, oh, IE suffix, uh, panties, mm. dollies, you know, when you put IE on something, it becomes diminutive. Um, so that was at play. Again, I made these videos like five, six years ago. Um, that's my excuse. But no, <laughs> I actually look back and I'm like, you know what? Without her, without that like cringy girl on YouTube, I would not be sitting here on the minimalists podcast. So yeah. she, she, she had, she was doing something right. She was trying. <laughs> it's like kind of how I look at my, 
my like twenties, I just look at it like I really look at that that man like he's really like kind of disgusting and douchey. Yeah. But I also wouldn't be the person I am today without without ex- without, without that yeah. douchey dude. Yeah. Much of what you've done is in contrast to that person right. in, in yeah. some way. You're like, oh, I learned I don't want to be him anymore, and, and therefore to not be him, I'm almost defining myself by by being someone other than him. Yeah. To me, this is almost the best form of otherizing. It's otherizing yourself. Your own, right. your own past self. Right. Yeah. yeah. What about our Patreon live stream? Do we have a, a question worth uh, worth diving into? Is anyone mad that I said that they were in a cult? <laughs> uh, no anger and just <laughs> oh, crickets for right now. I think everybody's focused more on listening. Oh, okay. Cool. Fair also. enough. It's because yeah. the Lululemon bag said, listen, 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 <laughs> then ask strategic <laughs> questions. Would you say it like that with the, with the eyes? With the eyes. Gr- you could be a cult leader. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> how, how about we move on to Stacy's question? If one has found out that they have been raised in a cult or cultish environment, what are some appropriate steps to free oneself from it and get out of that headspace? Additionally, she asks, how do you free yourself from the pain and move on? It's almost like this question was written for me. Or written by yeah, you. I'm going to hand that to you, sir. Well, you know, first off, like realizing that you were raised in a cult is one thing. And it's very disruptive and it's very, um, it's hard. It's, it's difficult to accept, because, especially when you thought you had all the answers and you really realize like, oh, wow, like not only did I not have the answers, but then I was lying to other people. Mm. So um, just accepting like the fact that I was gullible, the fact that I was raised in it. Um, I mean, I was indoctrinated from birth of, hey, man, world's going to end. Yeah. Um, just serve Jehovah. Uh, you won't even graduate high school. You know, Jesus is going to come back and clean up our room for us. He's going to come back and fix all these problems. And all you have to focus on is bringing more people into his light. Imagine the terror of telling a child, Dude. you don't even have to worry about graduate high school. You're never going to make it yeah. there. Yeah. And then, and then graduation starts coming up. And my, and my dad would be like, oh, I doubt you make it to 30. <laughs> it's like how I, convenient I, that the expiration date keeps moving. Right. Exactly. <laughs> According yes. to, you know, the fact that it, it hasn't come yet. <laughs> yeah. So you know, for me, and I'll, I'll be honest with, I don't, I don't know how to say this any other way. I was happier in the religion than I am now, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I believe it. And, and, and one of the most difficult things to, for me to accept is that th- the cost of being that happy was, it was lying to myself essentially. And the, th- I used to have this chase for figuring out a way to like get that happy again, but in a genuine way, Mm. but being that happy wasn't very genuine. So understanding that like the, the elation, the, um, the feeling that I had, like I'm probably, I'm open to getting that again, but I don't seek it out because that Mm. was actually really destructive for me trying to seek that out. So and not super sustainable. Uh, yeah. Just thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, isn't that what life is all about? Just like trying to strike the balance between happiness, but also like truth and, you know, not harming others. Mm. Uh, fucking a, life. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Right. The, the truth doesn't care about your happiness. Really? Yeah. That's right. Genuinely. Yeah. And yeah. You could tweet that podcast, Sean. 
That's my, uh, what do we call that? Limited, no, that's not limiting belief. That's the other thing. It's a, a terminating thought cliche. There we go. Yeah. I mean, it's a minimal maxim. TTC. Before we wrap up, Amanda, let's talk about your podcast. So um, I think you're on season two right now. We're about to, well, we're, we're trying to like get some ducks in a row so that we can do it continuously, like every week instead of having like a season one break, season two break. We want to do it every week. Um, but my co-host and I, we just started this podcast because I was like, there are so many groups that mm. I wanted to talk about that I couldn't talk about in the book. Your book is a great conversation starter. Thank you. It really is. Like it's, it, But I could see why you got the podcast because there's so many. Qu- there's so much more. Yes. So we just started it. You know, it's like it's sort of a comedy cult podcast yes, it is. because our dynamic is, you know, I'm more of the, I guess the expert, like I'm the author who wrote this book on the subject matter. And then I do it with my friend who, um, who does stand up, And so she's kind of bringing this like funny bestie energy to the dynamic. And, um, every week we choose a different culty group from the zeitgeist, whether it's multi-level marketing or soul cycle, you know, I talk about those in the book, but we also talk about flat earthers, Tony Robbins, mm-hmm. Um, we have a forthcoming bonus episode on the cult of the NFL, um, stuff like that. Yeah. And we discuss it in these like short episodes with the help of like banter, guests, games, legitimate research to try to determine whether or not it is a live your life, a watch your back or a get the fuck out level cult. Those are our categories. I love it. Yeah. I want to, I want to be a leader of a live your life. Yeah. Like that sounds like the cult I want to be part of. Oh, uh, celebrity stands is one of our episodes. So, so we talk about Swifties and mm. like obsessed Elon Musk fans. Oh, wow. um, it's yeah. I like both of those people, but I would never like plant my flag and like, no, they're good. Yeah, like, right. I felt the same way about, about Tony Robbins. Like I remember when I was 19 and he had some ideas that I still carry with me yes, today, but I never, sure. I never sort of joined uh, I never went. I would never go to any seminar Whoa. ever. Like, I, I just don't want to be around Again, crowds. Yeah, right. People. You want to be alone. Yeah. So, so, you know, to answer the question of this last person about when you're raising Nicole, it's very hard when you like with Tony Robbins, for example, or Elon Musk or Taylor Swift, you like someone so much and you look up to them. It's hard to accept that they're not perfect. Right. It's because this is your idol. And you certainly wouldn't idolize someone who was who was not perfect. It's mm. the halo effect, yes. which is like this ingrained bias that and tells us this person is important for your survival. That's exactly right. And you know, just going back to the question, it's like you have to accept that a nobody's perfect. The Bible's not perfect. I'm sorry, it's not. Like there's nothing in this world that is perfect. And oh, by the way, there are some things in this life that we're not going to get answers to. Mm-hmm. And like accepting the thing that we're that, that we're not perfect, and that sometimes things don't make any sense at all. Being satisfied with not having an answer that is what really helped me kind of uh, at least stay grounded, and it helps me actually be more curious and. Um, get more perspectives on things. And that's really like what I would recommend to this person who's like, oh my God, I was raised in a cult. What do I do? It's like, go out and like get different perspectives and, and live. That doesn't mean go out and do all the bad things that you, you know, you stop yourself from doing. You know, I'm not a Jehovah's Witness anymore. I still don't want to kill and rape people, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. That's such a pet peeve of mine when uh, folks who are, you know, extreme into religion or like, where do you get your morality? Right. I'm like, trust me, you can have it without abiding by these rules. Like, do you only not kill and not, and not rape people because you're in a religion? Cause that's, I don't want to be friends with you. If that's the only reason why I you're know, not doing those it's things, because you genuinely are, think you'll be damned to hell. If you do those things, that's the only reason why, right? That's the only reason why that's scary. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. But I think you really, like you were saying, you, you really can have a meaningful present, um, 
fulfilling life without having every answer to how we got here and what happens after we die. You know, yeah, totally. Amanda's mm. podcast is called Sounds Like a Cult. Patrons, she has a Patreon to help fund production. True. It's patreon.com slash sounds like a cult. Podcast, Sean, <laughs> would you please put a link to that in the show notes? Go ahead, go over there, give her five bucks, help her out with the production of the podcast. It's a great podcast. Thank you. I mean, it's never going to work. Two friends making a podcast together. <laughs> yeah, right. doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have a fancy studio, but one day, maybe. Mm. We started this podcast in a closet at the University of Montana. Oh, my God. We had like one microphone between yeah. us and, and we used Sean's computer and yes. it all has worked out since we, really we literally has. would sit at a table half this size in like a little storage closet oh yeah no, we sit on the floor in my bedroom we like put a sheet over my radiator so it doesn't sound metallic-y when we record it's like janky but it works well, yeah. we have another studio downstairs because we're minimalist you have to have two studios <laughs> so if you ever need a place to record there's a spot here as well so wow. um, that'll be open to you but um, patrons simpletons you are already part of our cult thank if you like, so much for being <laughs> like, part of our be cult. culty yes. culty and, and if josh and i ever turn into really evil cult leaders please let us know yeah. <laughs> in the comments that's my worst fear that's my worst <laughs> that's my worst fear by the way is like all of a sudden i look and i'm like when did i become so evil i didn't even realize it yeah yeah please make sure you like and subscribe to our cult <laughs> right exactly oh, oh man. wow like follow subscribe <laughs> amanda i want to acknowledge you uh congratulate yes. you on this book and thank your you. podcast thanks thank you for being here it's been an utter pleasure keep up the great work thanks all right y'all love people use things we'll see you next time see you patrons thank you Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it